0: On today's episode, Anna shares the story of Ed Gein, a deeply troubled mama's boy that inspired more Hollywood villains than any other killer in history. Then later, Ashley shares the story of French serial killer Henri Landry, a con man who preyed on the lonely hearts of Parisian women during the First World War. Welcome to Crime Bar.
1: Okay, Ashley. So this is the very individual that started my fascination with true crime and abnormal psychology. So I thought it was only fitting that I cover this case in one of our first episodes. If you are a true crime and horror fanatic, then chances are you have watched a movie character that was inspired by this horrific killer, Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Leatherface, Psycho's Norman Bates, The Silence of the Lambs' Buffalo Bill, and most recent, the character of Bloody Face, an American horror story, Asylum. A vile and deeply troubled individual that used skulls as soup bowls, made leggings from human skin and a lampshade from a human's face. Yuck. This is the story of Edward Theodore Gein. Ed Gein was born on August 27, 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and was raised by a violent alcoholic father and an abusive, fanatically religious mother.
0: Is that where lacrosse, the sport, originated?
1: I would assume so.
0: Did you ever date anyone who played lacrosse?
1: I would never do that.
0: Oh, so you wanted. I wanted But he too. was too good for you. <laughs> he was up here and I was
1: down <laughs> here. Those lacrosse boys. His mother, Augusta, hated her husband and despised his inability to keep a steady job. She believed that all men would inevitably become alcoholic losers and that all women were prostitutes that she labeled instruments of the devil. Including herself? I would assume so. She sounds great. <laughs> in an attempt to shield her family from sinners, Augusta forced the family to move from Lacrosse to this completely isolated 200-acre farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin. This not only enabled a completely codependent dynamic among the family, but it meant that Augusta's screwed up opinions on the world and the people in it shaped Ed's reality entirely. I obviously don't know what it was like living in Wisconsin during the 1900s, but I did some Googling to get an idea. In the late 1800s, immigrants flooded to the area, mostly from Europe and Canada. The sudden growth in population meant more variety in the demographic of people as well. The state was made up mostly of Catholics and Methodists, Even though the satanic panic didn't start until the 70s, there was a great deal of fear on the presence of Satan in one's community and family. Many believed that Christ would not come until all social ills were exterminated. This included drinking and sex out of wedlock. Of course, there will always be a spectrum in religion and a variety of beliefs. I just think the lack of information and communication caused a lot more fear back then. Augusta was extremely unhappy in her life and in her marriage she believed that having a baby would change things for the better. Oh, no. I know, because having a child has always been known to improve a relationship, or a bad one. Yeah. But after the birth of her first child, Henry, she came to the conclusion that her unhappiness was actually due to the fact that she was surrounded by men. Well, do you blame her?
0: She's not wrong. (laughs) She's not wrong.
1: She thought that having a daughter would surely fix all of this and desperately hoped for a girl when she found out that she was pregnant. When her second child, Edward, was born, she made it clear that he would never grow up to be like the other men. She noticeably favored him and treated him like he was the daughter that she never had. She babied him to the extent that he was unnaturally dependent on her. All throughout his childhood and adolescence, Ed had a very difficult time making friends. He was paralyzingly shy and spoke with a stutter. He had a fleshy growth on his eyelid that caused his eye to droop. He was also born with a lesion on his tongue, which led to a speech impairment, and that was most likely the cause of the stammer that he spoke with. The kids in his class found him strange because of his odd mannerisms. He would suddenly burst into uncontrollable laughter when nothing had even happened. He was often bullied and ridiculed by his peers for his appearance and tendencies. This only made the boy feel more isolated and fearful, which drove him further into the familiarity of his own home and family dynamic. When I read that he would have laugh attacks at strange times, I was immediately reminded of Joaquin Phoenix's character in The Joker. Apparently, this is an actual condition called pseudo-Bulber effect, and it's characterized by episodes of sudden, uncontrollable, and inappropriate laughter.
0: That's so unsettling.
1: It's so unsettling. Can you imagine anything more depressing than not knowing how to control your laughter in like a, a possibly uncomfortable situation? Like you're at a funeral. And all of a sudden, you just start laughing hysterically. Oh. You just can never, like, I would never socialize. It's an incredibly alienating disease and understandably causes a great deal of anxiety because people affected could just be having a normal conversation and then have an involuntary outburst at the most inappropriate time.
0: Oh.
1: It occurs in people that have had brain injuries or certain neurological conditions. Because there's a disconnect between the frontal lobe, cerebellum, and brainstem, people with pseudo-bulbar effect don't know how to regulate their emotions properly. Speaking of brain injuries, Ed's father, George, was known to repeatedly beat Ed's head until his ears would ring. Oh. We all know a head injury is is never good news in a true crime story. Augusta was said to have stunted Ed's psychological and sexual maturation with her overbearing personality and frequent punishment in regards to attraction. She believed sex was dirty and women were vile that the world was immoral and riddled with sinners, and it was her duty to drill this into her children. It was a daily routine to read passages of the Bible to her sons, favoring verses from the Old Testament that covered murder, death, and divine retribution. She lectured Ed on denying his attraction towards women and forbid him from ever engaging in any sort of sexual activity. If she ever caught her sons masturbating, she would pour boiling hot water all over them. Oh, So much worse than your parents just walking in on you.
0: (laughs) I know. Can you imagine? Like, that's mortifying enough. And then she leaves and comes back with... A bucket of boiling hot water. God, I'd be frightened.
1: The opposite sex scared Ed because he was very intrigued with their bodies and power over men. But he was also terrified that attraction would cause him to be eternally damned. I mean, this woman completely dominated her husband and her two sons. The household and dynamic just got progressively stranger and ultimately became a breeding ground for madness well into their adult lives augusta did her best to stand in the way of her children developing any relationships male or female for fear that outsiders would have an unhealthy influence and lead them to a life of temptation and sin according to real life villains she taught her son that women with the exception of herself were all whores and instruments of satan and therefore should be treated with hatred which is so not fair. It is ridiculous, all of them, but me. Everyone sucks, but me. Yeah. But anyways, Ed's natural interest in the opposite sex directly clashed with his mother's teachings, resulting in an extremely confusing and shameful way of thinking. Ironically, his mother's influence was the definition of unhealthy. It certainly seems that his future horrendous actions can be traced back to the environment that she raised him in. However, it's important to note that while that connection is plausible... I know the majority of people who grow up in terrible environments never commit crimes. Ed's brother, Henry, is a perfect example. He grew up in the same household and was taught all of the same things Ed was, yet Henry turned out completely different. Ed despised the way that his brother refused to live his life according to their mother's demands. It infuriated him when Henry openly criticized her, because Ed saw his mom as this goddess that could never do wrong. In reality, Henry was very concerned about his brother's relationship with their mother and was trying to create a distance that would potentially be a lot healthier for him. He didn't live his life according to her rules and didn't buy into her beliefs. In 1940, when Ed was 34 years old, his father died of health issues related to his alcoholism. This meant that the boys had to take over his role around the farm and pick up odd jobs such as babysitting. He was said to be the most comfortable around kids, and it's believed that he probably had an easier time connecting to them over adults. Can you imagine being the parents of these children and realizing later on that you had left them alone with a killer?
0: That would be mortifying.
1: Absolutely, it's hard enough finding responsible babysitters without throwing possible Skinner (laughs) into the list. Four years later, when Ed was 38, he and his brother were working in the field of their farm burning away the overgrowth of marsh vegetation. This was apparently a very regular routine, but the flames got out of control and they had to call the fire department. After the firefighters left the farm, Ed reported his brother missing. Not suspicious at all, once they leave. Later that night, Ed led a search party directly to his brother's dead body. He was found face down in the marsh with bruises on his head. The manner in which Henry was found caused a great deal of concern
0: fucking moron
1: absolutely i don't know where he is sir and then bringing him directly to the body
0: why is that his accent
1: (laughs) he has speech impediments i'm just winging it (laughs) (laughs) not to make fun of anyone with speech impediments but he is a murderer you guys yeah we can make fun of this one exactly the authorities originally blamed the fire but soon realized that his body had not been touched by the flames Even though they had no doubt that Ed had killed his brother, there just wasn't enough evidence to prove that he had done it. The police did not believe that Ed was even capable of killing anyone, therefore determined Henry's cause of death to be asphyxiation. It kind of seems to me like the authorities treated the whole situation like their father just died, and now the oldest son, this family has just gone through enough, and any suspicions of Ed's involvement were dismissed. The death of his brother further isolated him and strengthened the codependency between he and his mother he never dated anyone or even left the house instead he completely devoted his life to his mother and wanted to prove his unwavering loyalty augusta suffered from two strokes that left her physically disabled and completely dependent on ed to help her with every need ed was tortured by the way his mother withheld her affection from him In 1945, she passed away, leaving Ed all alone in the farmhouse. The death seemed to set off an obsession in Ed, a disturbing fascination with female anatomy and elderly women. Even though he claimed that his mother was a saint and the greatest thing on earth, a deep hatred for women had been building up inside of him for his whole life. This love-hate relationship has been studied by countless biographers and psychologists. It is written in Ed Gein, Serial Killers of Wisconsin, by Davies Brogart that Ed consciously loved his mother and hated other women, but unconsciously hated his mother and wanted to love others. After Augusta's death, Ed spent his days in complete isolation, filling his time reading about death cults and Nazi concentration camps, very much like myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a healthy brain. He was particularly fascinated by the torturous medical experiments they performed on the Jewish people. There is a possibility that his extensive reading on Nazi material eventually led him to German war criminal Ilse Koch. She was the wife of SS officer Karl Koch and infamous for her brutality and perversion at the Buchenwald concentration camp. The husband and wife were rewarded for their sadistic torture of prisoners and reveled in their quick rise to power. There was some level of human experimentation going on in every Nazi concentration camp, and Buchenwald was no exception. Ilse wanted to conduct a study on the possible correlation between tattoos and criminal behavior. Her test subjects were killed and skinned. She used their skin to make book covers and lampshades. And there was even a rumor that she used a thumb as a light switch. Ilse's horrific use of human flesh in her home very likely influenced Ed's future crimes. Unfortunately, his fascination with death and human anatomy did not remain an element of his fantasy. On December 8, 1954, Ed Gein killed his first known victim. Mary Hogan, a 51-year-old divorcee, owned the local tavern that was about six miles away from Ed's home. He was absolutely transfixed on her because of how much she looked like his mother. She was reportedly incredibly friendly to everyone that came into her tavern, and that included Ed. He waited for the remaining customers to leave before entering. Upon his arrival, Mary informed him that they were closing for the night. Without saying a single word, Ed walked over and pressed a thirty-two caliber pistol against the side of her head and pulled the trigger. She was killed instantly. There is a great deal of conflicting information in regards to how he transported her body back to his farm. Some sources say that he dragged her body outside, placed her on a sled, that he pulled all the way back to his farm. That would be incredibly hard work. Like, not to make light of that situation, but putting a dead weight on a sled and pulling that back six miles to your home. But on, on the other hand, other sources say that he loaded her into the back of his car and drove home. Well, that would make I more sense. I trust that. that source a little yeah. bit more. Almost four years go by without Ed taking another life. There is always the possibility that there may have been other victims, but we will never know. On November 16th, 1957, Ed entered a hardware store in Plainfield, just as Bernice Warden was closing up for the night. She didn't see him walk in, so she locked up the front door like she usually did.
0: Oh, you mean she locked him She in. locked him
1: in with her. Ed had walked straight to the back wall, where he grabbed a .22 caliber rifle and loaded the bullet that he had brought along with him. Like Mary, he shot her in the head and dragged her body out of the store. Bernice's son Frank, who was a sheriff in town, went to check in on the store after returning from a hunting trip. He found a pool of blood behind the counter and a slip written in his mother's handwriting. The slip mentioned something about ordering antifreeze. And this immediately triggered a memory about a conversation that he had just had with Ed Gein days before. Ed had come into the hardware store and struck up a conversation with Bernice and Frank about coming back to buy antifreeze. And I think this stuck in Frank's head because Ed wasn't generally a very social person for him to make casual conversation with people that he saw all the time was just kind of unheard of. Yeah. So I think that that stuck in his head even more than just a man wanting antifreeze multiple sources contradict themselves when it comes to ed's arrest some say that he was found at a local coffee shop and others state that he was finishing up grocery shopping at his favorite spot they all agree on the fact that bernice's son took him into custody while law enforcement drove directly to his farmhouse they found her decapitated and gutted body hanging upside down by her ankles amongst countless other disturbing trophies that's her son didn't find that no this is the authorities. so he placed him under arrest and then the authorities drove directly to the house I think to see what they would find okay inside of Ed Gein's home they found Mary Hogan's face in a bag chairs upholstered with human flesh skulls used for bowls and ashtrays a belt made from nipples and countless other gut-wrenching items that I can't even begin to describe I made the mistake of looking at that list online that provided actual photos of the items. Just like we provide warnings, I think they should have too, like a little pop-up. Felt like I had the flu. I haven't been able to look at my skin the same way. We will provide a full list of items on the website if you are interested in looking. Augusta Gein had been dead for 12 years when law enforcement made their way throughout the farmhouse. Each room was filled with items that were so unimaginable that they truly didn't know what to expect when they found an area of the house completely boarded up. So apparently, after the death of his mother, Ed decided to do a little renovation around the house. One would assume this meant improving the property and making it more useful, but no. He boarded up every single room that was used by his mother. Her bedroom remained untouched and pristine, but Ed's quarters were messy and literally covered in trash. Investigators claimed that her bed was even made and her nightstand still had a Bible on it. Essentially, he created a shrine to preserve the memory of his mother, as well as cope the loss. I think this is a very natural uh, segue to Norman Bates. Mm -hmm. I know you love that movie. Didn't Norman Bates also create a shrine for his mom? You know the movie better than I do.
0: Maybe we need to just watch the movie Maybe so you know it like the back of your
1: hand like I do. Now that we might be possibly quarantined, that might be the time <laughs> to catch on some more Hitchcock yeah, movies. A good idea. My mom wouldn't even let me see the movie until I was a senior in high school. Oh my! Look gosh. at me now. My <laughs> mom let me watch it
0: all the time. <laughs>
1: we both turned out weird. We just watched uh-huh. the movie at different times. Uh-huh. Even though he only admitted to killing two people, he revealed another shocking and sinister element to his crimes. 18 months after Augusta died, Ed dug up the body of his mother. He was said to have twisted her head off with his bare hands and preserved it. Ed desired human bodies being in his home, dead or alive. He visited over 40 cemeteries and dug up at least nine grave sites. He told authorities that he would look at obituaries in the paper and search for women that resembled his mother in hopes of becoming more like her. He loved peeling the skin off of the females' bodies and wearing them on top of his own. When authorities searched his home, they were shocked by how well-preserved the skins were. I think it's interesting that they noted how well he took care of them. (laughs) They were covered in formaldehyde and oil, and some even had lipstick smeared on them. Ed actually dreamt of a sex change, but gender reassignment surgery was not an easily accessible option back then. So in his mind, he did the next best thing.
0: Is that the next best thing, though?
1: I wouldn't think so.
0: I can think of so many many other things that he
1: could have tried. Stuff your bra like the rest of us did. He made an entire bodysuit out of female skin that he collected from the gravesite bodies. When there was a full moon, Ed wore the skin suit and would dance around outside on his lawn. (laughs) This should not be funny. But can you imagine driving by your neighbor's house and you see just in general a man dancing under a full moon? Yeah. But on top of that, he has a breast (laughs) vest on. You might recognize a few elements of his crimes in the Silence of the Lambs. Buffalo Bill was so disgusted by the fact that he was a male and so uncomfortable in his own skin after years of abuse and brainwashing that he thought he wanted a sex change. His inability to pass the mental health tests made this transformation impossible. So instead, he kidnapped and skinned females to make his own skin suit. Ed was diagnosed with schizophrenia, though many people argue with this diagnosis and suggest psychopathy instead. We don't really know if his crimes had to do with not knowing right from wrong and lacking a moral compass, or if he was in fact a schizophrenic. They're two very different things. He was found to be mentally insane and unfit to stand trial so he was sent to Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in wappen Wisconsin. He was later transferred to Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. Over 10 years later, the doctors determined that he was in fact mentally able to participate in his defense. Even though Ed claims the deaths of his victims were accidental, he was found guilty of first-degree murder on November 14, 1968. There was a second trial in regards to his sanity, and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He spent the rest of his life in Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. After a long battle with cancer, Ed Gein died on July 26, 1984 at the age of 77 due to respiratory and heart failure. Ed was buried next to his beloved mother at the Plainfield Cemetery. I don't know about you, but to me, it's very hard to read about his childhood and not partially blame his mother's abuse for the severe mental disturbances in her son.
0: Oh, she's completely Wouldn't to blame. you say?
1: It is possible that he began to view her as angelic and saintly as a way to cope. Ed's identity was so deeply interwoven into his mother that when she passed, he desperately craved becoming closer to her and being her. Digging up bodies that reminded him of his mother and wanting a sex change made him feel like he could manifest his dead mother's presence, and ultimately, his own identity. He made household objects out of females' bodies because his world was his mother. Therefore, he wanted to be surrounded and constantly reminded of her. Paul Anthony Woods' book, Edgeen's Psycho, was incredibly helpful during the research of this episode. One particular part of the book discussed the medical examinations and personal assessments that he had to complete during his sanity hearings. Doctors observed that he was in good physical health and the only recurring problems that he experienced were psychological. He would constantly complain about bad odors making him nauseous and he'd cry like a child in agony. When told to elaborate, he stated, it smells like flesh, it smells like the grave. I am no expert. But this sounds like PTSD. This yeah. is like a flashback of some sorts. On one occasion, Ed was drinking and eavesdropping at the tavern in Pine Grove, the tavern where he eventually murdered the owner, Mary Hogan. He asked the men around him if they had ever thought about changing genders. Light bar talk with the dudes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole, Guys night. <laughs> I know, seriously. I thought about that. I immediately thought of our partners yeah. just sitting there being like, hey, so. Have you ever thought about it? <laughs> While we're waiting for our beers, I was thinking. The whole bar went completely quiet and Ed started talking about how a man underwent surgery in Denmark and was now a woman named Christine. He said that he could do the surgery on his own after reading all of the right books.
0: He could perform his own. Correct.
1: Because if you read a book about flying a plane, you can fly a plane. Oh,
0: yeah. We've learned that. We have learned that with podcasting. If you listen to enough podcasts, you just know how to make one. You know how to do it.
1: You're going to be a star. Everyone around him burst into laughter, dismissing the statement and clearly not taking him seriously. According to listfirst.com, gender reassignment surgery was not widely available during the 1950s, and neither was breast augmentation or hormone therapy. So in his mind, creating a vest using a woman's breasts would be the next best thing. His mother forbid him from any sort of physical or sexual interaction with another individual, or even with himself, So this pent-up sexual frustration could have become misdirected. Could have. Could have. Definitely did. (laughs) I'm not a licensed psychologist, so I'm using a lot of coulds. (laughs) After being arrested and interviewed by a psychologist, he discussed two memories that he had of his mother, one being fond and complimentary, and the other just a tad more gruesome. The first memory involved Ed almost falling down the stairs and his mother running to rescue him. He thought of this act as saintly and heroic. For you and I, you would just think it's a mother protecting her child and this is normal. But it seems like he had so few positive memories of her that he glorified this simple gesture for the rest of his life. The second memory was of his father and mother gutting a pig in the slaughterhouse. He was only eight years old at the time. In the vision of his mother, slashing the pig right down the center of its stomach caused him to have his first sexual release. Even though there's no way to definitively know whether or not this violent act caused the arousal, He linked the two memories together for the rest of his life and repeated the same act on his victims that his mother had done to that pig. Since he was not allowed to touch women, he fantasized about them instead. He was absolutely fascinated by the sexual power that the opposite sex had over men. Even though he claimed to never have had sex with the corpses due to their foul smell, he was determined to be a necrophiliac. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, Necrophilia is the obsession with and usually erotic interest in or stimulation by corpses. When Ed was incarcerated, he was said to be extremely well-behaved and actually appeared happy. According to biographer Harold Schechter, Ed never required tranquilizers or punishment of any kind. He always seemed blissful and calm and got along very well with the staff and other inmates. Being incarcerated could have imitated his mother's authoritarian ways and felt comforting to him. This could have been due to growing up in a household that was so restrictive and controlling that he felt more at home with strict regulations. In fact, all of his horrific crimes were committed when he was alone and free to do whatever he wanted. Many individuals who have examined his life claim that his mother was the biggest contributing factor to his psychopathic crimes. It is easy to see why his crimes and complex psychopathy inspired countless books and TV character adaptations. And that is the story of Edward Gein.
0: That was really good. Thank you, Ashley. Very unsettling. Yes, I know. Which means it was good.
1: When people say that they're a mama's boy or describe their boyfriend as a mama's boy, it's always disturbed me for some reason. And now more than ever, it's just going to...
0: Just strong Norman Bates vibes, Ed Gein vibes. Yeah, that's too bad. That's what I was thinking the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing worse than meeting someone that you're really excited about, yeah, and then and then they describe
1: out- themselves as one. Oh, that's the weirdest. I've never experienced. I have that. encountered that. <laughs> I have encountered that, and you're like, that's not it's, something you brag about.
0: It's such a disappointing loss when you realize that he's a mama's boy. Well, you'll
1: never be able to compete with a mom. No, no, you're always going to be second best. Yeah unfortunately, or they'll try to wear your skin. So one or the other never goes a good way. I am very excited to hear your crime.
0: Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you're ready,
1: I'm very ready. I'm going to sit back, relax and enjoy my Chardonnay.
0: <laughs> 29 pages coming at you, baby. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to stay away for it. It's just large font. Cause yeah. I can't, I can't read. Yeah. Okay. So let me first start off by saying The French language is beautiful.
1: Yeah, the most beautiful.
0: And I butcher it horribly. Just stay positive for the whole thing. I probably spent the same amount of time studying proper pronunciations as I did the details of this story, and it still sounds pretty pathetic, so just please bear with me.
1: Yeah, just do it with confidence.
0: As usual, our sources are all available on our website because there's typically too many to list in the episode. But during my research of this story... I found that the work of Richard Tomlinson in his book Laundrieu Secret was by far the most helpful. I referenced Tomlinson and his opinions of the case in this story a few times, and his book was just so incredibly well-written that I really wanted to give a special shout out at the top because everyone should go buy it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So this true crime story actually begins with an old French folk tale. As the legend goes, a wealthy and powerful nobleman known as Bluebeard had been married several times to many beautiful women, all of whom had mysteriously vanished into thin air. When Bluebeard proposes marriage to a new woman, she's extremely apprehensive given his history. However, her family supported the union and encouraged her to accept the offer. In an effort to put her mind at ease, her brothers offered her a tiny whistle and told her if she ever felt threatened, she could blow the whistle and they would come to her aid. So they married, and she insisted that her sister come with her when she moved into Bluebeard's luxurious chateau. Not long after settling into married life, Bluebeard tells his new bride he's going on a journey, and he turns over all the keys to the chateau. He tells her she's welcome to explore anywhere on the grounds, she can do whatever she wants, she can look at anything, and she can unlock any door in the home. But... He points to a tiny, intricate golden key and tells her the door that this key unlocks is the only door she is forbidden from entering.
1: That sounds like a test to me. Yeah. You can't make that key the prettiest one, too. Yeah.
0: We're going to want to use it. She reassured him that, of course, she would respect his wishes and not open that door, the one that led to the underground chambers. Obviously, if he phrases it that way, Mm -hmm. anyone is going to open that door. And that's just what she did. Bluebeard's wife was stunned and horrified to find that the chamber was the stuff of nightmares. Multiple buckets overflowing with blood stained every corner of the room. Various knives, weapons, and torture devices covered every surface, and the bodies of Bluebeard's former wives hung from hooks along each wall. When she turned to flee, she accidentally dropped the key. It landed in the sticky blood, and while she frantically attempted to clean it, she soon discovered the stains would not come off. When Bluebeard returned, the first thing he asked for was the intricate golden key. She had no choice but to return it to him, stains and all. He erupted with anger and told her that by disobeying his orders and entering the forbidden chamber, she had sealed her fate and she would soon join his former wives. She ran to her sister, who recalled the gift their brothers had offered. She desperately blew the whistle three times, signaling for immediate help. As it is with folklore and fairy tales, her brothers arrived just in the nick of time to rescue her and kill Bluebeard. His only surviving widow inherited his massive fortune, honored his former wives by giving them all proper burials, and then she moved the fuck on with her life. So now with this folktale fresh in mind, we can transition into the next part of the story so that I can tell you about the man who would later become known as the real-life Bluebeard. In 1869, Henri Landrieu was born in Paris, France. He is said to have had a relatively normal and loving childhood, born into a humble household where his father worked as a furnace stoker and his mother as a laundress. His parents were devout Catholics and their family was heavily involved in the church. Many reports describe young Landrieu as bright and quite charming, particularly with the ladies. By the time he was 16, he was already studying mechanical engineering. At 18, he joined the French military, and after serving four years, he was honorably discharged with the impressive rank of sergeant. He'd grown up relatively poor and was determined not to resume that lifestyle by any means necessary. He marries a girl from his hometown, and they go on to have four children together. In an interview given after Landrieu's arrest, his wife states that he was a faithful husband and loving father, and that he had made an honest living in the early years of their marriage. So she claimed that it wasn't until an employer of Landrieu's swindled him out of a significant amount of money that he turned to fraud and swindling himself. So she's totally blaming, like, well, he, somebody else did it Someone to him. did so it that, to him. So he had no choice.
1: Absolutely. We've all been screwed over by people. It doesn't mean you start acting yeah. like a dick.
0: His preferred target was wealthy, elderly widows, wooing them before conning them out of their assets. He was actually terrible at this, and in 1900, he was sentenced to jail time after receiving the first of many fraud convictions. In 1904, while serving his time, Landrieu attempted suicide. So as a result, an examination by three respected psychiatrists is ordered. There's no known evidence of what they base their clinical judgment on, But one of the psychiatrists concluded that Landrieu was, quote, on the frontiers of madness, but has yet to cross the frontier. And the other two psychiatrists supported this diagnosis. So basically, in modern terms, they believed he was borderline. Okay. Whatever behavior they witnessed by Landrieu during this diagnosis, the psychiatrists were alarmed enough that they felt compelled to warn his wife that she should be on guard and weary of what her husband might do in the future. So fast forward 10 years to 1914 when World War 1 breaks out. Landry was estranged from his wife and he was working as a used furniture dealer. It's not confirmed, but most believe that he had ended his failed career at swindling elderly widows by this point because there's just no record of it and he okay. wasn't arrested, so it just seems like he, he... wasn't good at it anyways. Maybe, Yeah, he was bad at it anyways, and there's no record, so maybe that means he stopped or it just wasn't well mm-hmm. documented.
1: He went on to used furniture sales, yeah. a
0: necessity during wartime. <laughs> yeah. So, however, with the start of the war, Landrieu suddenly found himself in the company of lonely and widowed women in a city that was not largely policed. The draft required all men between the ages of 21 and 31 to serve. So with Landru being in his 40s, he was free to stay behind in Paris and resume his life as a con man. He began running advertisements in the Lonely Hearts sections of various newspapers with ads like Widower with two children, aged 43, with a comfortable income, serious and moving in good society, desires to meet widow with a view to matrimony. He ran variations of this ad in multiple newspapers and matrimonial agencies. He would regularly pick up women using the same story on the bus or the train, on the sidewalk, in shops, and basically anywhere else that he'd run into women. Mm -hmm. No one was safe. (laughs) No. In some of the ads, he noted that he owned a countryside chateau and hoped to find a companion who would be willing to enjoy a reprieve from the city. So if you lived in wartime Paris, and you may or may not have lost the partner that provided for you, A countryside retreat with a lonely, wealthy man was probably very appealing. Mm -hmm. So based off of evidence that police find after the war, it's calculated that Landrieu was in romantic contact with 283 women during this time. So Landrieu wasn't particularly good looking. He was fairly gaunt and noticeably short. He had small beady eyes and he was bald, but took great pride in maintaining his unusually long beard not my type let me just say (laughs) it's not a look I like so on the one hand he may not have needed to rely on his looks because he was highly educated well-spoken and was said to be extremely charming and then on the other hand none of these details may be relevant because it's possible his success with women was more of a numbers game he was one of very few single men in Paris more than 28 percent of the city's male population had been wiped out during the war so at the start of the war, Landrieu rents a countryside home called Villa Trique in Gombe, a small village an hour outside of Paris. It's at this home where he is believed to have entertained and eventually murdered the majority of his victims. In 1917, a Paris-based maid named Marie Lacoste is invited by her older sister, Celestine Busson, to spend a weekend in Gombe. Celestine had recently started seeing a man named Fournier who she was absolutely infatuated with. However, Marie could not stand the guy. She had a bad feeling about him and thought he was wrong for her sister, but couldn't ever really pinpoint why. Even though Celestine's invitation was probably meant as a chance for her sister to get to know him and hopefully change her negative opinion, Marie viewed it as an opportunity to snoop for evidence that her hunch about him was correct. This girl is very <laughs> you. Yeah. So as soon as Marie found herself alone at the home in Gombe, she snooped everywhere. She went through every room, every cupboard, every drawer. She even went through the whole garden. A Virgo. Like, <laughs> thorough. Very thorough. I mean, I just thought that was so funny because it's just a little garden. Like it's just, it's, she yeah. dug through his flowers. Like Picture her hand just like <laughs> yeah. through the soil. But if it was me, I would totally, like, I would look everywhere. And it would just seem normal to yes, do so. Yeah, but to read it, it just sounded funny. When she gets to the garden shed and discovers it's locked, she gets down on her knees and peeks inside through the keyhole. She could only see that there were large, bulky parcels stacked inside, but couldn't decipher what they were. So not long after giving up on this search for evidence that her sister's boyfriend is a lying douche, Marie learns that Fournier has actually been regularly withdrawing money from Celestine's bank account. When Celestine insists she's given him permission to do this, the girls argue and Marie accuses him of being a swindler. In an angry huff, Marie leaves the couple and goes back to Paris alone. This is the last time she ever sees her sister. So initially after this weekend, the sisters are on speaking terms. And by speaking, I mean they briefly communicated via letters. But their relationship was strained and eventually when Celestine stops writing Marie, she takes this as a sign that her sister has chosen Fommier. Not long after they stop communicating, Marie receives some odd letters supposedly from Celestine. She notices right away the signatures are forged, but it's not really cause for concern. She already knows her sister's engaged to a dick who's clearly just after her money. And super controlling, so you know. And because Marie felt like she'd washed her hands of Celestine and her life choices, she just didn't feel compelled to investigate. Okay. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I know, doesn't seem right so, to me, but yeah. I don't want to blame. So the last time that she'd spoken to Celestine for real, Marie was under the impression that Celestine and Formier were both giving up their Paris homes and moving to Quebec full time. So it was odd when a few months into the sisters not speaking that Formier started writing to Marie himself inviting her to dinner at Celestine's Paris apartment. Just not adding up. No. Marie ignored the letters, but then Formier started showing up to her home unannounced and insisting that she accept the invitation to dinner. So at this point, Marie is confused at his persistence and wonders why after months of not speaking, that Celestine continues to let her fiancé speak for her. She's also confused as to why Celestine still has her Paris apartment. But rather than look into any of this or even engage with him, she just tells Formier to fuck off. So then two years later, in early 1919, just after the war ended, Marie receives a letter from her nephew, who is Celestine's son. He had been severely wounded in the war and had reached out to his mother for financial help. But when she didn't respond to any of his letters, he grows concerned and asks his aunt Marie to contact her. The letters that she sends to her sister in Gombe go unanswered also so she decides to go to Celestine's old Paris apartment, where she finds that it's been at least a year since Celestine had been last seen there. The landlord told her that a man who identified himself as Frommier had briefly stayed at the apartment with another woman prior to the lease expiring. This is when it dawns on Marie that her sister could be dead. The more she considers this idea the more she believes Fromier was trying to cover his tracks by inviting her to an empty apartment under the guise of dinner so that he could kill her and eliminate the only person who would suspect him. And she has no way of finding this man. She goes to Paris police who turn her away and eventually Marie decides that she needs to write to the mayor of Gombe expressing her concern and requesting any information he may have on this man named Fromier. The mayor's knee-jerk reaction was to ignore the letter. But thanks to one of his assistants, they realized that the mayor had received a very similar letter from another woman two years prior. She was also inquiring about her sister that had stopped sending letters after moving to Gombe to marry a man named Fromier. Just the exact same situation. Mm -hmm. In that particular case, the mayor had tossed it aside as an issue that was not urgent. Despite the fact that in both of his hands, he literally held enough evidence to take to the police. Misogyny in the 1900s was the norm, so because these letters came from women, it was viewed as unimportant. Rather than look into the matter, the mayor simply put the women in contact with each other and wished them the best. So Marie realizes it's up to her to get to the bottom of this. So she goes to the home in Gombe, only to discover it was vacated months ago. So she wastes no time and starts to write down everything she could recall about this man. She wrote down the details of his relationship with her sister, how they spent their time, what she knew of him, what he looked like, how he carried himself, what he wore, where his home was, and what the interior was like. So for a woman in the 1900s who was not highly educated... And considered second class and unreliable simply for being a woman and had already been turned away by police. It was incredibly admirable that she thought to even write everything down. Mm -hmm. Lady balls. She takes this dossier to the police in Paris who again wave her off and tell her there's nothing to be done and her sister will likely turn up soon. When she persists, they tell her even if her concern was valid. She's claiming this took place in Gombe, which is outside of their jurisdiction. So she goes to the police in Gombe who also don't take it seriously. But Marie refuses to let this go and by continually hounding them she essentially forces the police to investigate. Good. So after Gombe police launch an investigation they discover the suspect actually has many aliases but his neighbors mostly called him the mystery man. When police interview residents of Gombe the neighbors recalled that they quickly noticed his strange behavior. As soon as he moved in, he had a large stove delivered. He kept to himself, and he came and went at odd times. Every time he was seen arriving at the home, he was accompanied by a woman. But each time it was a new woman. Neighbors only ever see Landrieu leave the home by himself, never witnessing the women's departures. More than one neighbor claims to have seen Landrieu dumping large packages into a nearby pond. But the most concerning thing his neighbors noted was the nauseating smoke that often came from his chimney. Smoke that they told police reminded them of Father Tibu. Years prior to Landru's arrival in Gombe, there was an old man named Father Tibu, who after drinking heavily one night, fell asleep near his lit fireplace. In his drunken stupor, he toppled over into the fire and literally burned alive in his own home. His body was only discovered after his neighbors complained of the nauseating smoke that came from his chimney. So this is enough for the police to search the vacant home and its grounds. Under a pile of leaves near the garden shed, they find charred fragments of human bone and what appeared to be burned fragments of women's clothing. They also find the bones of multiple dogs and a cat. Additionally, they partially drained the nearby pond but didn't find anything in it. Remembering that Marie didn't know his real name and only knew the address of a prior country home, the case essentially went cold. But later that year, Marie's roommate is in a small shop in Paris when she sees him. She had met the man she knew as Fournier on a number of occasions and was well aware of Marie's desperate attempts to find him. She follows him onto the bus, but after a few moments, she worries that he's recognized her. So she panics and gets off the bus and goes directly to the police station. They backtrack to the shop she had first seen him in, and it turns out he left his business card with the clerk. With this, they discover his real name and home address. They find him there with a mistress half his age, and then during his arrest, police literally watch him throw a notebook out of his apartment window. Oh,
1: no, buddy.
0: Luckily, that's not the most effective way to destroy evidence. Mm -mm. So they simply walk outside and pick it up from the sidewalk. (laughs) They find that he kept a very detailed ledger of his contacts and daily life. He kept track of his female companions and their financial status, along with which alias and background story he used when interacting with each of them. On one page in particular, he listed Celestine Boussin, and the names of nine other women and one male. When police investigate the names, they discovered that just like Celestine, all of them had been reported missing. One of the women, Jean Couchet, was the mother of the only male on the list, André Couchet. After becoming engaged to a man she'd met in a newspaper ad, Jean and her teenage son had gone missing. In the notebook, there were random days Landrieu would very specifically note the hour in which an event took place, but he wouldn't specify what the event was. So when the police cross reference these dates and times to the last known sightings of the missing women, they come to the conclusion that he was noting the time that he murdered them. So police also discover that when Laundry would travel to his home in Gombe, he would buy himself a round-trip ticket from Paris, but only a one-way ticket for his female companion. Landrieu is formally charged with the murders of the 11 names found in his notebook and the judge orders a psych evaluation to determine if Landrieu is fit to stand trial. Interestingly, the same three psychiatrists who had been used to evaluate him after he attempted suicide 15 years ago are called back to evaluate him again. And just like with their first evaluation, there's no known evidence of what they base their clinical judgment on, but they claim he is aware of his actions and deem him fit to stand trial. And it seems sort of like a contradiction of their previous diagnosis, mm-hmm. but without their detailed reports, it's kind of hard to say. Absolutely. The only details we do know of his evaluations is that when Landrieu is asked by the psychiatrist to describe any traumas he had experienced, he tells them of three serious head injuries. The first one took place when he was at school and he hit his head on the side of a chimney. The second head injury happened when he was serving in the military, and then another later in life when he claimed to be fixing a car. He said with the car being on a jack, he was on his back underneath the engine when the jack collapsed, Oof. allowing the car to slam to his head. It's a severe one. It's a common misconception that during the war, Landrieu only targeted wealthy women. Out of the 10 women he was charged with murdering, it's believed that only two or three of those victims had significant wealth and the rest were almost destitute.
1: So he murdered just a murder? Yeah. Nothing to do with stealing?
0: Well, a little bit. A little bit as a bonus. It's discovered during the trial that the victims had more differences than they had similarities. They ranged in age from 19 years old to 55 years old. Their professions ranged from typist to prostitution to dressmakers to retired governess. So for this reason, their financial statuses were all across the board. Their only solid similarities seemed to be that they all lived in Paris and they were all labeled foolish, vulnerable, silly women by the press and law enforcement for falling for Landrieu's act. So victim blaming at its finest. Yeah. It was never confirmed how they were killed but it's possible they were strangled or poisoned. A book of famous poisoners was found in his home at the time of his arrest, so there's a theory that could have been the form of murder. Richard Tomlinson, author of the book Laundrie's Secret, believes the circumstantial evidence proves that strangulation was the method used. While he always denied the murder charges, during the trial, Laundrie did admit to killing three dogs and a cat, all owned by the victims. He stated that strangulation was the gentlest of deaths. Investigators believe that after the murders, Landrieu dismembered his victims before burning their remains in his oven and then scattered their ashes in the garden of his Gombe home. This was mostly based off of the bones and charred fragments of clothing they found in his garden, but during his time in jail, Landrieu did something that many people interpreted as a confession. When he was younger, Landrieu had worked briefly as an architect's intern where he learned to draw exceptionally well. So during his time in his cell, he drew an image of his kitchen, and in particular, the stove. He captioned the drawing something along the lines of, It's not important what happened outside of the wall, but what happens inside the wall. When you pair this with the testimony of a woman who had visited his Gombe home, but survived her time with him, stated that Landrieu had pointed to his oven and told her, one could burn anything in there. It's easy to see the connection. While many people argue this was some type of cryptic confession, it's more commonly viewed as Landrieu just trying to fuck with everyone by setting up a red herring. His motive for murder was a source of mystery during his trial and still not much is known today. It's likely it started out as financial gain. But when and why his crimes went from conning to murder is completely unknown. While Tomlinson theorizes in his book, Laundrie's Secret, about the motivation behind the murders, he confirms that the thing that stood out the most in his research is the undeniable reoccurring theme in Laundrie's life of pure disgust for women in general. Laundrie's behavior and statements during his trial made his hate for women clear. He repeatedly states to the courtroom that women are weak and only here to obey men. When the women whose loved ones he murdered testified against him, Landrieu would yell to the jury, don't listen to these cackling hens. (laughs) I hate him. (laughs) Misogyny was common in that era, so it's not surprising that he'd share those views. But the viciousness behind it is unclear. There's never been evidence of Landrieu having a traumatic experience with a woman and the people closest to him claimed that's because nothing like that ever happened. The three-and-a-half-week trial was a spectacle, to say the least. Everyone and their moms clamored to get a front-row seat. It's believed that the courtroom had the seating capacity of 220, but by the end of the trial, one journalist estimated there were at least 500 people in the room every day. Every aspect of this case in the trial was full of misogyny, You have Landrieu, who murdered and openly hated women and kept detailed records of his over-the-top sex life. He recorded every encounter he had with a woman, how often he picked one up off the street, the bus, shops, restaurants, literally everywhere. He trolled women constantly. It's a full-time job for someone that hates women. Mm -hmm. Even a couple of hours before his arrest, he hits on a woman at a bus stop and makes a plan to rendezvous with her the following week. He repeatedly remarks in his notebook into the courtroom how little women matter. Then you have the defense attorney. Landru's lawyer was one of France's greatest defense attorneys at the time, and his strategy was to take full advantage of society's horrible opinion of women, as well as the all-male jury by building his argument around the idea that the victims were immoral sluts who were likely all sex workers. So as if they deserved it? Yeah. you have the press when i said that everyone and their moms wanted a front row seat i'm not exaggerating famous authors poets actors all found ways of getting into the courtroom so not only was the case salacious and worthy of coverage on its own but covering the daily who's who of the audience members was a whole other story for the press as an example of the rampant sexism of the time When one journalist sees a beautiful, famous actress taking a seat in the courtroom, he wrote in his coverage of the trial, Wouldn't it be lovely to see her play one of Landrieu's victims, so that one could see her naked on stage? So Landrieu's attorney had a somewhat complicated task. On the one hand, he has a client who is charged with murder, but there is zero physical evidence that any murders ever took place. So when you pair this with his sexist argument, it seems like a slam dunk. But on the other hand, Landrieu is batshit crazy, and his behavior becomes increasingly erratic during the trial. The more his attorney tried to control him or keep him silent, the more outlandish Landrieu became. He would heckle the audience and jury without being provoked. He'd be quiet and composed one moment and then erupt with uncontrollable anger the next. During testimony, he would stand up and yell at everyone, including the judge, he accused the prosecution of being bloodthirsty, and whenever the women would testify against him, Landrieu would speak over them and tell the jury not to listen because they're women. Despite having a very successful defense lawyer, Landrieu operated as though he was his own attorney. He insisted on reviewing all 7,000 case documents in his cell and was said to have spent his evenings frantically writing notes on each one. This made no difference in the end. If anything, it was just another insight into his instability. While the evidence of murder was pretty strong, it was by no means conclusive. After running tests on the bones found in Landry's garden, it's determined this is unusable as evidence. There's no way to determine whether the bones belonged to men or women, and they were such small fragments that it was impossible to even confirm what bone the pieces originated from. This meant the jury would be faced with a decision of the heart, In the French courts at the time, you didn't need beyond a reasonable doubt. You needed what was called an intimate conviction. This means at the conclusion of the trial, you had to know in your heart that this man deserved to die. So I initially chose this story because it was interesting, but as I got further into it, it was honestly the bravery of the women who testified in the trial that fascinated me the most. The odds against any woman at that time were so awful. These women knew something bad had happened to their loved ones, yet the police were so resistant or at best slow to respond. But because these women pushed and refused to give up, they are the ones who got shit done. Their persistence is the reason an investigation was ever launched to begin with. It's truly moving when you recognize what they were up against. The amount of strength and determination they showed by continually entering the god-awful atmosphere of that courtroom was just heroic. They knew a guilty conviction was on their shoulders. They had no evidence that their loved ones had been murdered, so they had to sell a biased all-male jury on what they knew in their hearts to be true. In November of 1921, after three hours of deliberation, Laundrieu was found guilty and sentenced to death by guillotine. It's believed that Laundrie's guilty conviction was due in large part to the emotional testimony, But author Richard Tomlinson believes the final nail in the coffin was actually due to a decision that Landrieu's defense lawyer made. During cross-examination, the defense asked Marie Lacoste to describe to the courtroom a dream she'd had about her missing sister, Celestine. It's likely he asked her to describe this so that he could say something like, See, she's making this up. She's accusing this innocent man of murder because of her dreams. Mm -hmm but what he does not anticipate is the reaction of the entire courtroom after hearing her dream. She says that in the dream, Celestine comes to Marie with a large cut on her neck. Marie asks, how did that happen? And Celestine tells her, well, did this to me. Marie asks, did it hurt? And Celestine says, no, I was sleeping. At this point, Marie is sobbing uncontrollably and can't get the rest of her words out. The display of raw grief was so moving that the defense lawyer fell silent and chose not to finish his cross-examination. It's likely that he chose not to finish not because he was moved, but because he realized it was impossible to hear of this dream after days of powerful and emotional testimony and not feel absolute hate for Landrieu. Henri Landrieu is scheduled to be executed on February 25, 1922, just outside the prison gates in Versailles. Apparently, he was not supposed to be informed of his execution date, and I had a hard time finding out why that was, but he gets word of it on the evening of February 24th, and for the next 12 hours, he counted down the moments until his death. On his final morning, he follows the ritual of meticulously grooming the beard he's so damn proud of, and then he's taken to the registry office where the prison barber hacks off the beard. It was custom at executions to offer the dying man rum and a last cigarette, but Landrieu declines both. With his hands tied behind his back, the prison guards began to march him outside only to be stopped unexpectedly. The public tram system typically ran directly past the guillotine, so normally they delayed trams so as to not overlap with scheduled executions. However, someone had forgotten to notify the transportation company. When the guards requested that the driver park a ways down out of sight, he refused because the tram was already late as is. (laughs) It stops for nobody. (laughs) So Landrieu and the guards had to stand there and wait, watching the morning commuters yell and cheer for his impending death. There was a certain protocol for guillotine executions, and it seems Landrieu's didn't follow it. Normally, after the prisoner is locked in, The blade is supposed to drop right away, and it's all over in an instant. But according to some journalists who were present, this didn't happen. It's believed the executioner stalled for several seconds to either relish the moment or to just torture Landrieu, forcing him to wonder when it was coming. While Landrieu was found guilty on 11 counts of murder, those 11 names in his notebook were part of the 283 romantic contacts he kept detailed files on. Police claim to have followed up with all of the names listed, but the truth is Tomlinson found buried police records that stated they'd failed to make contact with about 70 of the women. This obviously doesn't mean that he killed those 70 women, but there's no way to know that for sure. Landru maintained his innocence, and because there was never real evidence that any murders took place, we will never know for certain how many lives he took. After his death, Landrieu was buried in an unmarked grave in a large cemetery located in Versailles. To this day, no one knows exactly where his grave is. And given that he robbed countless people of the ability to bury and visit their loved one's graves, it seems appropriate that no one will ever be able to visit his. And that is the story of Henri Landrieu.
1: Round of applause, Ashley. Thanks. That was really nice. Well, well, Nice, not not the right word, well done. Thank you.
0: Yes, it's wild to think about the fact that there was no evidence of any murder, but I'm he just, he was convicted. Like that's that is how powerful the women's testimony was. Yeah,
1: yeah. So good for those I girls. Mean, so based off of their gut instinct, they were able to convict him. Yeah, pretty insane. I wish we had one of those today. What? Like the gut instinct trials where you're oh, able to?
0: No, that's awful. You don't want that if you're the one who's on the stand. Yeah, that's true. Okay, take it back. <laughs> Good luck sleeping in Ash. <laughs> okay, see you next week. Love you. Love you.
1: Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Ana Katerina. We'll see you next week.